The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, we finished up Galatians last week. My plan is to move into the book of Leviticus. And that's going to take some time to, to study and to look into. And it's also kind of a heavy season right now, schedule-wise, uh, for me. So what I'm doing is I'm going to recycle some sermons um, as I'm preparing for Leviticus. And I kind of randomly picked John 13. And it's a good section. It's an encouraging section on Christ's love for us, his people, and then how we are to emulate that love. So the passage this afternoon, or I guess this morning, it's still morning, is John 13, 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there now. John 13, verses 1 through 5. John 13, verses 1 through 5. Let's not give our attention as God Himself speaks to us through His Holy Word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Well, this concludes the reading. God's infallible, perfect, and holy word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, before we dive into this, we just have to do a brief overview of the Gospel of John. The overall purpose of the Gospel of John is explicitly stated in John 20, verse 31, which is, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the purpose of the Gospel of John is so that we would believe in Jesus. And what's interesting is that the Gospel of John is 21 long chapters, some of which are the longest chapters in the entire Bible. Now when we think of evangelizing, when we think of reaching the lost, we tend to think sometimes of handing them a little track, a little short summary of the gospel and thinking that hopefully that gets them to believe. But when John thinks about helping us to believe, causing us to believe, wanting us to believe, he writes 21 long chapters simply on that. There are 879 verses, 15,635 words on simply believing in Jesus. And he fills 21 long chapters primarily with doctrine or simply truth rather than duty to perform. Very little is given with regards to duty to perform. And this is, if you were a detective, this would be called a clue. And the clue is that we are very slow of heart to believe in the gospel. 
Oh, I sat under the preaching of the true gospel for five years, not realizing I was still dead in my trespasses and sins until I finally realized that I was dead in my trespasses and sins and believed in Christ. And I have come to realize the more I live the Christian life, how feeble and weak my faith is, even as somebody who preaches the gospel every week and gets to dive into God's Word every week. Still, my faith is feeble. And so this is why the gospel of John is so long and why even professing believers need to hear it. It's food for the soul to feed on Christ. Now, the Gospel of John is split up into two main sections, sometimes called two books by theologians. Not that they're literal two books, but it's just called that. The first is the Book of Signs from chapters 1 through 12. This is Jesus' public ministry where he performed many signs, seven of which are recorded in the first section of John, culminating with him raising Lazarus. And then the second so-called book, chapters 13 through 21, is Jesus' hour. Or Jesus' glory. This is where His hour has come. That is to go to the cross. The time for which He came to give up His life. Where He glorifies God by laying down His life and taking it up again. And where He receives glory from the Father and being raised from the dead. And our passage today is in that second book. And the focus of the Gospel here, John's Gospel, turns from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry to his disciples. It's introduced by the words, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It does not say that he loved the world here. Rather, the focus is on his own who were in the world. Not the same thing as the whole world. He has a particular people who are called his own And they are in the world. And these particular people is the focus of his love here in this second book, so-called, referring to his hour to give up his life. Him dying is him dying for his own, for this people given to him by the Father, as John 6 says. While God has a general love for all people, where he causes his reign, to fall and his son to rise on all people, yet he has a special love for his own people in giving them salvation. The God who is love does not love all men in the same way. As James Montgomery's, Montgomery Boyce once said, God has done some things for all men. But on the other hand, God has done all things for some men. And those of us in here who believe are those men for whom He has done all things. And this verse sums up our passage. It's verse 1 about Him loving His own. And it really sums up the rest of John's Gospel. So four facets of Jesus' special love for His own people is what we're going to look at. The first is the degree of His love. The second is that it's in the face of adversity. The third is that it's based on true knowledge. And the fourth is that it's displayed in humble service. So first facet of Jesus' special love for his own people, and that's the degree of his love. That's verse 1 again. Now before the feast of the Passover, 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the first thing to notice is the context in which this love for his own people is placed in. It's placed in the context of his death, beginning with the Passover feast. The Passover is the most important celebration for the Jews. It commemorates them being brought out of their old life of Egypt, an old life of slavery, and into a new life of God through the blood of a Passover lamb. And of course, that is a type pointing to Jesus, who is that lamb who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away our sin. It is His shed blood that saves us from the judgment of God and rescues us from our old life of slavery and sin. And it would be during the time of the Passover lambs being sacrificed that Jesus would coincidentally die on the cross, giving Himself up for our sin. So the Passover feast sets this passage in the context of Christ's death. And John also sets the context of Christ's love for his people in it being his hour. Well, this hour is not a literal 60 minutes. Rather, it's referring to a specific time, a specific purpose, referring to Jesus' death and the events leading up to that. As our verse says, it is the time of Jesus leaving this world to return back to the Father, and he would do that through way of the cross. This hour has been mentioned a number of times in the Gospel of John, but it's been mentioned only in the context of his hour not yet coming. But now his hour has come. It's time for him to go to the cross. It's time for him to love his own in this way. And so it is in the context of his death that the love of Jesus is mentioned because it is in Christ's death that we understand how he has loved us to the end. Now this phrase, he loved them to the end, can refer to two things. It can refer to love on a timeline. That is how long he has loved them. Jesus loved his own to the end of his life. It is true. And this is certainly true in the fact that Jesus did not give up on loving them. Jesus continued to love his own all the way to the death, his death on the cross. However, this phrase, until the end, can refer to the extent or degree of his love. That is, how much he has loved his own. He loves his own in the greatest possible way that anyone could love. Jesus mentions this in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And this is what Jesus has done by his substitutionary death on the cross. Not only did the Son leave his glorious throne, as it were, and he came to earth, but he did so to give up his very life for us, living for us, obeying the law for us, being tempted by the devil for us, undergoing incredible suffering that we will never know because of His suffering in our place. 
What greater love can there possibly be than this love of Christ given for His own people? Men may give many priceless and valuable gifts, but what greater gift can there be than the Son of God that the Father gave for us? A man may lay down his life to save us from death, but only the Lord Jesus can lay down His life to save us from eternal death. A father's love may be absent, or a spouse's love may fail us, but Christ's love never fails. Christ's love never ceases. Christ's love is perfect in every way. And even though He fully sees our sin much better than we see it, He still gave His life to the fullest measure so that we who were sinful in the fullest measure would be blessed in the fullest measure. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the very end, to the uttermost. The second facet of Jesus' special love for His own is, it, is that it's in the face of adversity. Verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So when Satan put it into the heart of Judas to do this thing, it wasn't as if Judas heard an audible voice. As if Judas was sitting there minding his own business, and Satan said something and he goes, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Rather, it would have registered to Judas as one of his own thoughts, one of his own desires. Uh, we are not able to distinguish whether a sinful thought or desire we had was from the devil or from our sinful hearts. Our sinful flesh is in agreement with the devil. And so, Satan, in some mysterious way, works through our sinful desires. However, unlike Judas, we have the Holy Spirit, we who believe, and are able to fight against the sinful desires of both Satan and our sinful flesh. But the point is that in the context of Christ loving His very own people to the very end, John mentions that the devil had already put it in his heart to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew this, as verses 21-27 through 27 of this chapter reveal. And the reason I believe John mentions this is not only to signal that Jesus' hour has come to die, but also to show the amazing love of Christ for us. In the midst of this great suffering and sorrow, Christ still thinks about and demonstrates His love towards His own. Think about this for a moment. Christ is about ready to face death, and a death fiercer than any death that any of us will ever know. The wrath of God for every sin of every believer whom He represents. Even the unbeliever isn't going to face a death like that. He's going to face the wrath of God for every sin he's committed. But Jesus is facing the wrath of God for every sin of every believer, a whole people. He knows he's going to face that. And he's about ready to be betrayed by a close companion and friend. 
Have you ever been betrayed by a close companion or friend? Somebody who should love you and then somebody who doesn't? Probably one of the most painful things to go through. They rip your heart out and stomp on it. They're supposed to be your, your companion. They're supposed to even love and protect you, and they don't. They turn against you. Sometimes I think that dying would be better than having a loved one that you trust turn against you. But this is the pain that Christ is about ready to experience. One of His own within His closest circle of friends is about ready to betray Him as an enemy to the enemy. And not only is Jesus about ready to go through this rejection, but much more than that, He is about ready to be rejected and forsaken by His own Father. And Christ knows all of this. He knows that He's about ready to face it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am going through suffering and difficulty, it's really hard to think about anybody else. It's like I'm slowly moving through a thick fog and have a hard time focusing on anything other than the difficulty and the pain. The last thing I would be in the mood to do in my natural state would be to do what Jesus did, to humbly serve others. And yet, this is exactly what we see Jesus do in light of the knowledge of what is about ready to happen to Him. In the face of adversity, the greatest adversity, we see Jesus rise and serve others. And not only this, but He also knows that His disciples are going to abandon Him and even deny Him. It's one thing to say, I want to serve my friends who, who are going to be with me through thick and thin. But he rises up and he serves those whom he knows is going to abandon him. Jesus says to Peter in, right here that you are about ready to deny me three times. He knows he's going to be abandoned by them. And yet, despite knowing this, he still humbly serves them in condescending, tender love. Their sin is no barrier to Christ's love for them. And we need to keep in mind that our sin is no barrier to Christ's love for us. If Jesus did not withhold His love from His disciples while knowing that they were going to abandon Him like a bunch of cowards and even deny Him under oath, then how much more will He withhold His love from you because of your sin. He will not do it. Jesus knew every one of your sins before He went to the cross for you. In fact, that's why He went to the cross because of your sin. Jesus knows how sinful you are and yet still loves you. There is no sin no adversity, no hardship from your hand that will make Jesus forsake you. Not even sins that you're going to commit in the future. Jesus knew His disciples' future sins, and yet loving them, He loved them till the end. As Paul says in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, including you, you're part of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves us in the midst of adversity. Now, how is Christ secure and strong in His love and in serving others in the face of pain and adversity? Well, this brings us to the third facet of Jesus' special love for His own people, and that is it's based on true knowledge. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God. It's interesting to see everything that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes here before telling us that Jesus got up to humbly serve his disciples. John doesn't just simply tell us that at dinner Jesus got up to serve his disciples. Before John gets to that, he spends three whole verses telling us what Jesus knew before he rose to serve his disciples. By doing this, the Holy Spirit here is showing us that knowledge of the truth precedes humble, godly action. This is why Jesus says back in John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And the context there is being freed from sinning. So if the truth is what sets someone free from sin, then what keeps somebody in bondage to sin? It's lies. Behind every sin is a lie that our heart is believing. And this is why Satan, the father of lies, as Jesus calls him, operates the way he does. He speaks lies to us in order to keep us in bondage in sin. He says things like, you really think God's going to forgive you this time? You're too far gone. You really think he loves you after what you've done? You really think he's going to keep loving you? You got to get your act together first before he will love you. Or sin's not that big of a deal. Go ahead and indulge. You fall into sin. See how big of a deal it is? God will never forgive him. Feel the weight of your shame and guilt. That is how Satan keeps us in bondage. That's why we need to hear of Christ's love. And the gospel, it is the knowledge of the truth that drives our practice. Doctrine drives devotion. Now verse 3 tells us that Christ knows three things that drives his humble service to his disciples. First, it says that Christ knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Why is that knowledge necessary? To do what he did. Why does John tell us that? Well, all things that were lost in the first Adam were committed to Christ. The, the, the last Adam to restore them. And then to present them back to God. And Christ knew that God had promised him all things. Committing all things into his hand. And that he would indeed finish his work. And receive them. Because that's what God had promised to Christ. In that covenant of redemption before time began. That Christ would be heir of the world. That he would receive all things. That he would receive an inheritance. And does this not help us to serve and love one another? 
lot of times we don't serve one another because we want to take. We don't believe we have enough. But when we know that we have all that we will ever need from God in Christ, then we don't look to take, but to give from the fullness that we know that we've been given. Christ receives a kingdom that has no end, an eternal rule in the new heavens and the new earth, and a people for His own possession. And we are co-heirs with Christ, and we receive all things with Him. Secondly, Christ knew that He had come from God. Christ knew His identity, that He was the Son of God, and that He had come from God. He was certainly secure in His identity and did not need to prove himself or try to make himself into somebody great to receive recognition or vindication. He knew these things. And he knew that God knew them. Thirdly, verse 3 says that Christ knew he was going back to God. He knew where he was going. He was ultimately going back to be with God. He believed the promise of him in Psalm 16 or regarding him that The Father would not allow him to see corruption in the grave, that he would be raised from the dead, raised to see God again, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Yes, he was going to die. Yes, he was going to go to the torturous and shameful death of the cross. Yes, it would be at the betrayal of one of his closest companions. Yes, he would face the full-fledged wrath of Almighty God. But the cross, the grave, death would not have the final word. His betrayal and rejection of man would not have the final word. He knew he was going to God. He knew his final destination would be with God the Father where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And it is knowing all these things that was the basis for him rising from dinner in humbly serving His disciples. And it's knowing these things deep within our hearts, beloved, that prompts us to turn from our self-centeredness and to humbly serve the way Christ served, to humbly serve His disciples. Even though Christ is fully God, yet He is also fully man, just like you and I. And so we could follow Christ's way of thinking here and helping us to get through the tough times And focus on loving and serving others rather than ourselves. Like Christ, we too need to know that all things are ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. We get His inheritance. Paul says in Romans 8 that we are co-heirs with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says that we have been seated with Christ so that we will reign with Christ. We will be vindicated on that day. An open and public acknowledgement by God Himself that we are righteous and accepted in the Beloved. It will be an open statement of our righteous and acceptable status, receiving honor from God. The same justification that Christ received is our justification because it's the same righteousness. We have Christ's righteousness credited to us, counted as ours. And like Christ, it is knowing our identity as a son of God that frees us up to humbly serve. Instead of trying to make ourselves out to be somebody great and doing things to be recognized or feel important or avoid doing them because 
we don't want to draw close to people. We want to stay hidden. We're afraid of failure, afraid of being exposed, afraid of not measuring up. We, we are more comfortable to be like Adam and Eve were in the garden hiding. Rather than that, we find security in our identity as a dearly loved child of God. It is knowing, knowing who we are as sons that causes us to not be so concerned about what people think of us, how they are treating us before we serve them, as if we are seeking some sort of recognition from men or covering for our shame. And instead of doing dead works out of a guilty conscience to try to make up for our sin, which is a heavy burden, we know that we are already forgiven children of God. And that is when our load is light enough to serve others. Serving others is no longer a burden because you are not weary from carrying your own guilt and shame and trying to do works to alleviate it. Uh, this is what makes somebody self-centered and, and irritable because they're, they're tired of carrying a heavy burden of the law. Trying to get it right. But when you know your identity as a beloved child of God, innocent, blameless, perfect in God's sight, apart from anything that you will ever accomplish, apart from any transformation or reformation in your own life, apart from any works whatsoever, then Christ's burden is easy and light. Think about how different it would be if we were secure in our identity, knowing that we are innocent and forever accepted by God as a son. You no longer need to find your identity in another person's love for you or respect given to you. You may get snubbed, rejected, insulted, treated harshly, and these things are all indeed sin against you and more importantly against God, but these are not a reflection of who you are before God. As a child of God, you are innocent, fully accepted in His sight, beloved, and a treasured possession of God. He rejoices over you as one of His children. And like Christ, it is knowing where we are going that frees us up to humbly serve since we know the hope of the world to come. If you are placing your hope for happiness in this life or in other people, then you will certainly not be able to endure. But if you are placing your hope in heaven, in the all-glorious God with whom you will be forever satisfied, then this world and other people cannot ultimately take away your happiness. Come what may, you will be able to endure hardship knowing that you will be with God and this vapor of a life will soon be over. Fourth and final facet of Jesus' special love for His own is that it's displayed in humble service. Verses 4-5, through five, it says, Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So in light of his knowledge of all that he has, 
in light of the knowledge of who He is and where He is going, Jesus rises from supper to wash His disciples' feet. Usually this task uh, was performed before supper as the guests were arriving. Usually there would be a bucket and a towel at the door for the guests to wash their feet. There would be a slave who is ready to wash the feet of the guests. And since there wasn't, Jesus rose in the middle of supper and did it. And that he rose in the middle of supper would stand out because this is supposed to happen at the beginning. It's as if, it's as if Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that there's nobody else there who can do this for them. And as we see, this cleansing, this foot washing is more than just taking dirt off of their feet. It's symbolic of the cleansing that Jesus is going to provide for his own. We'll see that the next time. But it shows that only Jesus can do this. Only He can stoop down to serve them in this way. And what is amazing also is the humility to which Jesus stooped in this act. Washing someone's feet was the lowliest, most humiliating task one could perform in that day. The Jews said that the student owed all service to their teacher except for washing their feet. That was going too low. The Jews expected their slaves to perform all tasks, except if they had a Jewish slave. They forbid that Jewish slave from washing the feet. Only Gentile slaves were expected to wash feet. This was a task so low, so demeaning, that only certain slaves were assigned to this task. And this is why it's so amazing to see what Jesus does here. We see the teacher wash the feet of the students. We see the great rabbi stoop down to do the work of the lowliest of slaves. But more than that, we see God as a man who created His disciples' feet go so far as to wash them as a slave. But what we have here is a picture of the cleansing that Jesus would perform. In Jesus laying aside His outer garments and dressing Himself as a slave, we see a picture of the Gospel. We see a picture of what Jesus did on a much grander scale. That He set aside His heavenly garments, as it were. And He veiled His glory as the King of Heaven and dressed Himself as our servant in a human body to undertake a much Worse and more humiliating task than washing feet, being numbered among the transgressors and taking on the shameful death of the cross in order to cleanse us from our sin. He who is the greatest and highest one set aside His robes of glory and dressed Himself as our servant, not merely to wash away, not merely to wash away dirt from our feet, to wash away our sin by His blood. And He did this knowing full well how dirty we were, but He still dressed Himself in our body to serve us in this most humble and humiliating way because of His unfathomable love for us, His own. So let us have this thought deeply embedded in our hearts, beloved. Having loved us, defiled ones, are in this world. He loved us 
He loved you to the utter most. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to believe this. And as we believe it, as we know it, as we allow these things to ruminate within, that they would deliver us from the weakness of our flesh, from the weakness of our constitution that is so heavily reliant on our circumstances and how others treat us. And oftentimes we find, we try to find deliverance in the strength of man, that is in man treating us better, and then we will uh, be delivered. But in reality, the strength is found in knowing Christ's love for us. So help us, oh God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.